Hello, I'm Kristen McDonald, and welcome back to Second Vision. How would you like to be able to resolve deep interpersonal conflicts within seconds' time? Well, my guest today will tell you that it's possible. He's an award-winning author of three books, and his latest book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds, has just hit the stands. And Doug is uniquely qualified to talk on this subject. He is a speaker, a trainer, award-winning author, He's also a lawyer-turned-peacemaker, <laughs> and Doug is also recognized as an international mediator and is spreading his peaceful words around the world and the state of California. He was recognized in 2005 by U.S. News & World Report as the top lawyer in America. How about that? And in 2012, he was awarded an honor by California Magazine as California Lawyer of the Year in 2005. So if you're ready to diffuse any conflict in your life, whether it's a coworker, a spouse, improve your relationship or your communication skills, or just take a look at yourself, then this is the show for you. Welcome, Doug. Hey, Kristen. Great to be here. Uh, wonderful to have you. So tell us, lawyer-turned-peacemaker. Sounds like a contradiction in terms. Well, it really isn't. You know, I stand on the shoulders of the greats. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer and a peacemaker, and one of the greatest peacemakers of the 20th century, Mohandas Gandhi, was also a lawyer and ultimately a peacemaker. And so, the 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 true the true calling of lawyers is to resolve conflict as peacefully as possible. Of course, today in the 21st century, that vision has been lost in many ways uh, as people pursue litigation but i think underneath it our job is to is to help people get their conflicts resolved um, as peacefully as possible and hopefully preserve relationships as much as possible and so that's what i've been doing since i left the practice of law in 2000 now what acted as a catalyst for that i i, I told you earlier i was fascinated i'm just got into your book de-escalate how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds and i'm i'm absolutely mm -hmm. loving it because it it pertains to everything your relationships with your children right. your coworkers your friends your marriage everything <laughs> and i uh, i was reading about susan russo the the one who who you know prompted you to start this prison of peace can you tell us about that sure um in 2009, a colleague of mine in, in Southern California, Laurel Copper, who is a very well-known mediator and, and peace activist, uh, called me and, and said, hey, let me read you this letter. And the letter was from Susan Russo, who at that time was serving uh, a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which was Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. Susan was basically writing on behalf of about 100 women, all in the same place that she is, lifers and long-termers, who were tired of the violence. And they wanted to learn how to become peacemakers and mediators and asked if we would come in and train them. And we said yes. And six months later, we found ourselves training our first 15 women uh, at Valley State Prison for Women in very hardcore practical mediation and peacemaking skills. We only expected to train the 15, but by the time we were done, we had a waiting list of 200 women wanting to get the training, so we decided to keep going. And today, we are in nine California prisons. We're in three Greek prisons. We're going to be starting Prison of Peace in Australia and New Zealand late next year. We'll probably be on the East Coast next year in Connecticut and New York. And we receive inquiries 
monthly from countries and states all over asking how uh, they can start prison of peace because the results we have received in working with long-termers and lifers, lifers has been nothing short of phenomenal. And I'll just say of those first 15 women we trained, all of whom were lifers and long-termers, half have been released. Of the 400 inmates that we have trained that have been released on parole, zero reports of recidivism, no reoffending. They're all doing great. That so, is so incredible. And didn't you say someone had said to you, if I'd learned these skills before, I wouldn't have been in prison? It happens about. It happens every time we start a new course. And invariably, two or three inmates will come up and say, if I had learned these skills 20 or 30 years ago, um, I wouldn't be in prison today. And the last guy that said that to me was a guy by the name of Tommy Bullen, who was one of the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood. And uh, he came up to me two weeks ago and said the same thing to me. You know, verbatim, if I learned these skills 30, 40 years ago, I wouldn't be in prison today. And he's been down for 43 years. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Just unbelievable. And the Susan Russo is now being released, right? Well, uh, she received a letter of clemency from Governor Brown, and uh, that makes her eligible for parole. She had a parole board hearing set for September. We haven't heard. Uh, we haven't been in touch with her, so we haven't heard what happened or whether or not she actually had a parole board hearing, but it's our understanding that she is supposed to get out before the end of the year. But whether that's happened or not, I, I just don't know. But it's but it's pretty Fantastic. phenomenal. Fantastic. Just yeah. uh, totally phenomenal. So so let's talk about, you know, especially for those who don't know, what, what does a mediator do and, and how does it pertain to your workshops within the system and how can it spill over into our lives? So there are four ways to resolve any kind of human conflict. We only have four choices. One is coercion, where one person tells the other person what to do and can enforce it with power. The second is to go to outside authority, like a judge, a jury, or an arbitrator, or two kids going to mom and dad, or two kids going to a school teacher. That outside authority is given the power to decide and enforce the decision on how the conflict is going to be resolved over the two people who have the conflict. In both those cases, the parties give up their power to resolve the conflict. In one case, even the party who has the power still gives up a lot of power because it's very costly to enforce power over somebody else. The third way we can resolve conflict is through mediation. And in, in the mediation process, the parties agree to come together. They step into the power circle, and they agree that they're going to decide if the conflict is going to resolve and, if so, on what terms. But because of the emotions and the problems they've got, they bring in an outsider who is not going to tell them what to do, but is going to guide them through a process that allows them to make the best decision they can under the circumstances. So as I, as I teach, mediators de-escalate parties in conflict and then help them problem-solve to a resolution, making the best choices they can make with the information they have available. The mediator is the process person who slows the conversation down, keeps everybody de-escalated and calm as much as possible, and provides a process for people to figure out what they want to do. And that's basically what mediation is. And then the fourth way that we resolve conflict is how we really resolve 98, 99% of all our conflicts, and that's just through discussion, conversation, and negotiation. But what happens is when we don't have the tools to deal with our strong emotions, we tend to immediately go to coercion. I don't care what you say. I'm going to thump you until you do what I tell you to do, which mm -hmm. is how a two-year-old, that's the first conflict method two-year-olds learn, right? He or she right. has the most power wins. Then people learn later on in life that they can lawyer up and find the meanest junkyard lawyer they can find and go to litigation. 
But what what happens, of course, in litigation, as any trial lawyer will tell you, is that is that you're going to mediation at one point or another after maybe spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees, and you end up in mediation, and, and again, 95%, 98% of all cases settle in mediation. Um, so what I always tell people, why not, if you have a dispute, why not go to mediation first? You can you still have the right to use power and, and outside authority if mediation doesn't work, but um, find a skilled mediator and go there first. But our culture is not doesn't have that kind of education. It's kind of like trying to sell toothpaste to a village that doesn't know what a toothbrush is. Right. And television is all about litigation and law and law and order and all that stuff. There's only been one show in recent memory about mediation and only lasted one season, maybe two. And the problem is that for the media, peacemaking is very boring. And so the media has no interest in peacemaking. Conflict is what sells sells and conflict and drama and so we get we get fed a, a diet of conflict drama and and argument and fighting i mean look at jerry springer for example and why his show has been so successful you know if you had doug Noll mediator on <laughs> it probably would probably wouldn't do so well <laughs> all you so, have to do is so, turn on cnn today and you'll see that everything's exactly so but that's what mediation is all about. And our work is quiet, and we don't talk a lot about it, and because it's mostly very confidential and very private, uh, and people don't hear about the thousands of successes that occur every day in mediation as mediators go about doing their work, bringing peace into people's lives, where where before there was chaos and drama. So, how can that pertain to, let's say, someone who's dealing with a a disgruntled child, like I was reading in your book last night, and, and you know, you're talking about empathic listening and right. affect. Is it affect? Um... Affect, affect labeling. Yeah, so can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so let's just talk, talk generally about the skill that I've developed uh, based on neuroscience, mostly based on the work of neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman, who was at UCLA and, and I understand now is at Harvard. First of all, we cannot solve emotional problems with logic, persuasion, or argument. You simply can't do it. We all know that in- instinctively. We know that when somebody's emotional, logic and rationality will not work. It just makes things worse, in fact. So what does work? So what does work is instead of, listen- instead of listening to the words, in fact, we ignore the words, pay attention to the emotions. So it's a three-step process. Step number one is ignore the words. You know what the words are. You don't need to listen to them. If somebody's really angry, we've heard angry words before. We've heard them from small children. We've heard them from adults. We know what those words are, and we know what they mean. We can ignore them. We're not going to miss anything by paying attention to the words. And, in fact, by ignoring the words, it keeps us from getting triggered ourselves. Step number two, guess at the emotions. We, we can't read minds, but we're pretty good at reading other people's emotional data fields and guessing at what they might be experiencing. So we guess at it. Step number three, we reflect back what we think the, person, the speaker is feeling with simple use statements. Not I statements and not questions, simple use statements. Kristen, you're really angry. You're really pissed off. You feel totally unsupported. Nobody's listening to you. You feel completely and totally betrayed. And you're a little anxious because, you know, you're unsupported, and you feel a little sadness and grief because you're all alone. Something like mm-hmm. that. That's how you would go about it. Now, does it. that come off as patronizing, or does the person it, it, feel it, they're it, manipulated at times? Never. Never. Because never. people mm-hmm. are so grateful that you are listening to Acknowledging. them. Acknowledging. That's right. You're validating their experience. 
Mm-hmm. They're so grateful that tears will come to their eyes. I've taken inmates, guys who are 6'6 six, six and 280 pounds, gangbangers, all tatted up, looking pretty fierce, and brought them to their knees emotionally in 90 seconds in front of 200 other inmates. Amazing. And they're grateful that I'm doing it. And they're sobbing because I, for the first time in their lives, I've listened them into existence. So we started the question with a two-year-old. The most important thing you can do with young children from about 18 months to four years old is instead of yelling at them when they have a tantrum, is to validate their emotional experience. Because the reason it's the terrible twos is because the emotional centers of the brain are coming online. Those children need to experience every possible emotion, and they need to learn what those emotions are. And the only way they're going to learn what they are is if their parents label the emotions for them so they can build up a database. It's called emotional categorization and granularization. So they can build up a database of emotions that they can associate with what they're feeling, their affect. Mm-hmm. If we if we minimize those emotions through emotional invalidation, like saying, hey, grow up, don't be a sissy, don't cry for guys, don't be a girl, Stop we're, invalida- we're invalidating those emotions, or shut mm-hmm. up, we're mm-hmm. invalidating those emotions, we're telling children that their emotions are, are horrible, and we're denying them what it means to be a human being. And that's why we have, one of the reasons why we, <coughs> we have so much dysfunction. And in fact, down in San Diego, um, Kaiser has done this incredible study over a longitudinal study over many years called the ACEs study. And on one of the adverse childhood ex- ACEs stands for adverse childhood experience. What what they've shown is that if a child has more than three ACEs, then the likelihood of having a good outcome later in life is is very is is dramatically diminished. And emotional abuse, even the benign emotional abuse of emotional invalidation, is associated with cancer. Cardiac disease, chronic pulmonary disorders, diabetes, addictive disorders, smoking, and imprisonment later on in adult life. Now, that was another area where I, I start, stopped in your book and just took a breath because I think there was some, some uh, excuse me, statistic about how stress impacts our lives, which, of course, I know. But, I mean, just to hear it in print, you know, the, right. the amount of stress it causes, you know, shortens <laughs> lives. Literally That's right. There's, your there's a really there's a really there's a really great Danish study where they did a longitudinal study of people in Denmark yes. over 20 years, looking at just looking at conflict, social social conflict within relationships, and they found that people had had any kind of significant fighting or arguing in their families had significantly shorter lives than people who were able to live in peace. So conflict itself shortens our lives if we don't know how yeah. to respond to it carefully. And so the question becomes, well, what's the skill? How do we go about dealing with this? And the secret is is to listen to the emotions and reflect them back instead of arguing and fighting with people. Well, so and is this not about take... winning the argument? I mean, Absolutely when you, not. You're, yeah, you're still not agreeing with the person, let's say. Never. I mean, maybe, right, you're never agreeing with the never. person. Never. But you're, you're validating, validating a, right, their emotional their experience. experience. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Doesn't and then what happens with, with the mirror back? They diffuse. Do they also validate yours? It, it, well, if they have the skill. I mean, this is the great conundrum in the beginning is, is mm-hmm. that you learn these skills. You're able to quiet down people uh, uh, around you. And then what do you do about yourself? What about your own needs? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the, here's the beauty about this practice, what we've learned with the inmates, is that if you practice this pro- three-step process of ignoring the words, guessing at the emotions, reflecting the emotions back over a short period of time, I mean less than a month or two months of practicing, you are now able to label your own emotional experience 
and calm yourself down. And you will find mm-hmm. yourself becoming less and less reactive. And you will find that you will be calmer. You will find that that chatter monkey you hear in your brain goes away. No more, no more chatter monkey, chatterbox in the brain. And you'll live, you'll live, glide through life in stillness and equanimity and nothing will bother you. I've had inmate after inmate after inmate report to me how this has transformed their lives. And they've calmed down. <coughs> and the guy that used to jump into fights mm-hmm. and pull knives, not anymore. They walk away. They say, I don't need this. I'm cool. Oh, wow. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, even Just on it. a smaller scale, we, look at the, the, the emotions that we all feel when we go into argument mode. We get That's defensive, right. which is one of mine. <laughs> we get, yeah, we get... Um, we retreat. We get hostile. We get... Uh, um, we're sad. We feel abandoned. We're sad. We feel unloved. We're depressed. Mm-hmm. Right. We feel disconnected. Exactly. We don't feel heard. We feel abused. And, exactly. you know, the, I took this, um, you know, one of the motivational or inspirational seminars I took years ago, and I remember, you know, how some things stay with you, how, you know, she was saying, you know, nobody can hear you when you're up here, you know, when you're both speaking, you know, and she just raised right. her arm way up to the sky. And it's so true because that's what happens in an argument. Everything right. escalates and nobody can hear each other. And why is why does it escalate? Because instinctively we're not being heard, so we raise our voice. Well, if you're not hearing right. me, then I'm not I'm not I'm not being loud enough. So that's right. why we raise our voices. It's all right. automatic, and we don't think about it. But the problem is, up until now, literally up until now, up until September 12, 2017, there have not been the tools to de-escalate people. I don't know why. I stumbled mm-hmm. across this in 2004 in a mediation. I found the neuroscience to support it in Lieberman's study in 2007. I spent a couple of years refining the techniques. We took it into prison to acid test it in maximum security prisons, and I've been teaching it ever since all over the world. I was in Europe last week teaching at The Hague, at the Peace Palace, teaching diplomats this stuff. And I was going to I mean, ask you, do you have trainers all over the world? You must. No, must I'm, it's just me right now. It's I'm just at, you going and, to all these different places? Yeah, and Laurel, my, my colleague. And your partner, the yes. yes. Yeah, we're working in the prisons. I'm going around doing workshops. I'll be in Nashville next week teaching at Lipscomb University, teaching these skills. Um, but it's just me. And so the whole point of the book is to make it accessible to every human being who wants to learn how to have peace in their lives in a real, practical, non-kumbaya, not sitting around having s'mores around the campfire, but real, hardcore, practical stuff. This stuff works. Well, Otherwise, and not giving advice. I like that part in the book, too. Never my give sister advice. and I just went through this yesterday. She's going through a dilemma because... Uh, <clears throat> She's in between countries, moving country to country mm-hmm. now, and it's, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes along with that with visas and so forth. And I tried to give her a little advice, and she later said, I didn't want your advice. I just wanted right. you to listen. You know? Right. So, so I tell people, if you really want to you really get a sense of what I'm talking about, there's a great minute and a half YouTube out there called It's Not About the Nail. It's, it's had over like 2 million or 3 million views. But go just watch that video. Read my book and watch that video, and you will totally get what I'm talking about. And say that one more time. It's not about the... It's, called, it's not about the nail. The it's nail, just a N-A-I-L. Funny, uh, N-A-I-L. It's okay. hysterical. Okay. It's hysterical, and if you read my book and watch that video, you'll totally get what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. I and love they, that. The, the producer of that, Jason Smedley or whatever his name is, and, uh, I, I, and the, the actors, Monica Barbieri, they're in Southern California. They did a beautiful job in a minute and a half kind of setting all this out about not giving advice and just about listening. Because our, yeah. here's, the pro- and, here's the problem, Kristen. Mm-hmm. When we're around people who have a problem or they're really upset, it creates anxiety within us. You have anxiety around your sister. You want to get rid of that anxiety. 
Yes. Because anxiety, yes, you want to get rid of it. You need to soothe yourself. So the way you soothe yourself is either by diminishing the emotions of the other person that are causing anxiety in you or giving them advice and essentially telling them, go away, do this and go away and don't bother me anymore. That's essentially <laughs> what you're saying. It's so true, but later she wrote me on email saying, I took your advice and I'm doing part of what you said, so I, I have right. to take it back. But she wasn't ready to hear it at the time, and we, we do That's right. it all the time. So It is appropriate. It's only appropriate to give advice after you've de-escalated people, you've explored with them all the things that they've done, and then you've asked them, after all that's done, you say, would you like my opinion? Would you like right. Would you like some suggestions? Only after you've done a whole bunch of other stuff. But our tendency is to jump right in, well, what you should do is yada, 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 yada. But I, I liked what you what you said in the book, which was, you know, have you tried this so far? Have you? In, right. in other words, you weren't telling the person what to do, but you were asking questions, sort of somewhat what psychologists do, you know, coaching. Where they you're coaching. Of, yeah, coaching. You're coaching exactly. Right. Exactly. That's all you do. Because yeah. why do you yeah. need to, why do you need to take the 800 pound gorilla onto your back? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what happens when you give advice. You're taking on the 800 pound gorilla, and now you're responsible for the outcome. Now, your dialogue with the kids, with the teenagers, is just mm-hmm. brilliant. I listened to some of your YouTube videos, and right. uh, I thought to myself when I was a teenager, because we all gave our parents problems, you know, had my mother kind of walked me through some of those emotions, uh, it would have been easier on her and on, on all of us That's right. growing up. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's such a simple, fundamental skill that it needs to be taught and it needs to be practiced. It's counterintuitive. But once you learn it, it will change your life forever, just as it's changed the lives of tens of thousands of people that I've worked with. And that's why oh, I wrote the book. Fantastic book. I can't, I can't wait to finish it. Now, can you share some other stories from your experiences with, you know, being a mediator and, and, and doing um, Prison for Peace, you know, getting out there? Yeah, so I'll t- there's a story I tell in the book that I, I just love to tell because it's so poignant. And I, I, we talk about this early on. In the, I talk about it early on in the book because it was it was the moment when I realized the power of what this is at. And as I say in the book, we'd entered in the conference room. We were training the first 15 women, and we got in early, and there was a woman who was sitting over in the corner, and she was quietly sobbing. And Laurel walked over to her, and I followed Laurel. And the story was this. She'd been in prison for over 10 years. She went to prison when her son was 16 or 17, 18, I mean 6 or 7 or 8. I think she'd been in prison for 12 years, and she hadn't been there for her son. Her sister was raising her son, and she, but she had written her son every week um, for every every week that she'd been in prison. Never heard from her son, never got a letter back, never got a phone call, never got a visit. And she looked up to us, and eyes filled with tears, and said, Last week I wrote a letter using the skills that you guys taught me, basically putting myself onto his track, thinking about what he must be experiencing, what he must be feeling, and and just um, reflecting back what I thought he must have experienced over the last 10 or 12 years. And she said, <laughs> she said he for the first time he wrote me back. He was very angry, but he said he would come visit me in the next three weeks with his girlfriend. Oh, my goodness, that's so beautiful. Beautiful. And we hear stories like that all the time. All the time. Now, and, do you feel you're always in a safe environment? When I mean, uh, I, in prison, be, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So these these I people mean, are coming into your workshops. It's it's voluntary. They're totally voluntary. Because, okay, they do it because okay. something. We've had people come into our workshop who hate us. 
They hate every minute of our workshop. Every minute for three years. They hate every every moment they're there, but they can't not be there because there's some part of them that's called to what we're doing and what we're teaching. And then when they do, the, it's fascinating. But but at the end, does that mean they graduate also to become? That absolutely, they do the work. A they trainer. Show up, they do the work. Uh huh. They show up. They do the work. And of course, they eventually they turn. And I'll, I'll, they tell us, "I hate you. I hate you. I hate you." But I love you. <laughs> you <know. laughs> and of course, they can't graduate unless you you get to. No, we don't care what they think about us. All we care right. about is do the work. Do, do the, the work. work. Yeah. Do the work. And so you have exercises all the time. Oh right? my God, we we and are tough. They're in the book. Yeah. Well, actually, no. I mean, well, some of the exercises are in the book, but really, I have an online course that where we where I take if people really want to get into this, they can do the online course and um, really get into it very deeply. Uh, but the book the book gives you enough information if you practice the skills, um, you can mm-hmm. get it. But if you want to go deep, go deep. You've got to either. Go to a workshop. Go to one of my workshops, or, or do the online course, which is well, very powerful and very deep. I think we all need um, lessons in how to speak to each other politi- about politics these days. Right, it's a challenging time, isn't it? There's a lot of it's anger. It's a very out there. challenging time. So the way that I tell people to deal with political polarization is this: you're sitting across the table from somebody who has beliefs that are so repugnant to yours you can hardly be in the presence of this person. And let's say it's a family member. Mm-hmm. How do you go about having a civil conversation with this person? And I say you're going to ask four questions. you got to be an adult. You got, and the, the one thing you're not going to do is argue, persuade, or contradict. The first question is this. Kristen, I'm really interested in your views on this topic could you take a few minutes and just tell me about all the life experiences that have led you to the beliefs that you have today? I'm just really curious about how your life led you to where you are today. Okay. That invites you to tell me a story about your life. And mm-hmm. what are all the things that happened to you that caused you to, to have the beliefs that you have today? And I would imagine that Kristen has never been asked this question before, and she's never had to think about it before. So now you start telling me and all of a sudden we start learning that there's common ground here that maybe i've had very similar experiences that you've had you just have had processed it differently than i have then the next question i might ask is so how do these beliefs that you have how do they help you navigate your daily decision making how do they help you in your life figuring out what's right what's wrong what's moral what's immoral how do you navigate with these beliefs because all beliefs are are just heuristics they're shortcuts for decision making and they just help us make sense of the world so we don't have to use a lot of cognitive metabolism to figure out how to solve problems. So I want to just know, how, you, how do your beliefs help you navigate the world? So that's another discussion. And then the third question I might ask is, how, um, how do you deal with people who have different beliefs than you do? I mean, they're everywhere. People, not everybody agrees with you. And so how do you navigate that? How do you deal with people who have different beliefs? And so we get into that, and that always provides some interesting information. And then the last question, which is the most provocative, is how do you think our culture and society should deal with people who have different beliefs? Do we make room for all these different beliefs, or do we just only say one set of beliefs is appropriate and nobody else can believe anything else? I mean, what do we do? How do we manage that as a society, as a culture, as a government? And notice that in all of these four questions, I never asked them what their belief is. Right. I never That's what I was going to ask you. Uh-huh. Never ask what their belief is. Never challenge mm-hmm. them. Never contradict them. 
<laughs> never tell them they're crazy or be judgmental, critical, or react. Or put them down. Or put them down. Ne- I have to be an adult, and, I'm, and, I, and I certainly am not looking for my own beliefs to be validated. All mm-hmm. I'm interested is in learning and trying to understand what their life is and how their beliefs guide their life and how they see the world through their, through their beliefs. That's all I'm interested in. And you would be amazed if you have that kind of a conversation with somebody who appears to have very radically different beliefs than you do, how much you really have in common. It's amazing. It's amazing. And what and looks so like... so this throws them off the political path, though. So they just start totally. focusing on their... Yeah. It, it makes them more introspective and allows them to open up and think about what their beliefs really are. Mm-hmm. And instead mm-hmm. of being knee-jerk reactive, you goddamn liberals, right? I mean, mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. crazy conservatives, you wing mm-hmm. nuts. Instead of going to that extreme, they now start becoming self-reflective. They start sharing a little bit. You share a little bit. And all of a sudden you find, although you may never agree, agree on particular topics that might be highly polarizing, at least you have shared common ground. You have shared experiences and you understand each other. And you can tolerate that. You learn that you can tolerate it. I can tolerate your beliefs. I understand where you're coming from. You have every right to have the beliefs you have. And if you, if, if I'd had the experiences you had, I would probably have the same beliefs you do. Yeah, so you get a totally different okay. perspective. Because often right. we pick up the political beliefs of our parents or just, you know, where that's we right. school, our, our culture, our neighborhood, where we've traveled right. to. Exactly. You know, what kind of a socioeconomic background we've had. There are all sorts of different exactly. reasons. Exactly. Yeah. And so now we start to understand what are, what are all those what are all those influences <laughs> that cause us to have the beliefs that we have? <laughs> and all of a sudden now we can become more tolerant. We humanize. Basically, we're humanizing people. We're humanizing right. each other. Yeah. And we have to understand that in today's political reality, the way that politicians see their path to power is through fear, through separation, through creating tribalism, through creating extre- and through extremism. That's their own, that they see that as the only path to power. So they mm-hmm. are invested in separating us, not joining us, mm-hmm. because only through separation do they have power. If, if, if we were to all come together and say, yeah, we all have a bunch of different beliefs about pro-life and pro-choice, but we don't care. We all believe in the sanctity of life, and therefore we're really not interested in quadrupling or quintupling our nuclear warhead, our nuclear arsenal. And everybody rose up and said something, or we're not interested necessarily in allowing people to have automatic weapons because we believe in the sanctity of life. Mm-hmm. That would be devastating to the political structure because yeah. they can't deal. They can't deal with people coming together. They can only get their power from dividing. And that's what Trump's all about, and many Democrats. They're all about that: divide, 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 and conquer. yeah, yeah. It's never been more divided. No, that's right. And they're, but but it's intentional. It's intentional, and and so we can we can overcome that, but it's not going to happen at the top. It's got to happen at the bottom. We have to learn how to de-escalate people, mm-hmm. ignore the words, pay attention to the emotions, reflect the emotions. We have to learn how to have conversations. Tell me more about <clears throat> your life experiences. What led you to this? Be willing to listen and learn. Part. Out of all the skills that we've talked about, do you think the empathic listening is is Primarily one of the most important, or what would you put foundational. at the top of the list? I'll, I'll just tell you how foundational mm-hmm. this is. We teach it in the first day of our training in prisons, and we don't even start teaching mediation for, it, for at least until a year later. And the reason that we teach this empathic listening on the first day is we want them to be practicing this for the year before we start teaching them how to be a mediator. 
That's how powerful it is. And they need wow. to have that skill absolutely buried in their soul by the time we teach them how to intervene in the conflict of other people. It's interesting because I just took a course, um, the, the wonderful people I had on the show, Ron and Mary Hulnick at University of Santa Monica, and mm-hmm. I'm going through their book now called Finding the Light, and they have right. a number of chapters too. Just it's it's a similar, but it's you know it's um, it's put in yeah, a they, spiritual context, you know, about empathic right. listening. Just, yeah, right, they I do freedom to the repetitive which, theme. Yeah, they do the Freedom to Choose project, which which we which we encounter in the prisons all the time. It's very different mm-hmm. than what we do. It's very different than what we teach. Um, but, but I just the meant the listening the skill, you know. Right, the, the, the skills. Validating, the, the, right. The message is we need to validate and listen to each other. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Laurel and, and I, in particular, are the only ones that really teach you how to do it. And, and everybody mm-hmm. else says to do it. I mean, if you listen, you can go on the Internet and find all kinds. Yeah, you should be learn how to be an empathic listener, but people really don't. I've never figured out quite this, these steps. And I think that's because the neuroscience has still not gotten through to people about what, how the human brain really responds to empathic communication. And it's counterintuitive to what we think. We think the words are important. We think we have to pay attention to the words. And really the words mean nothing when people are highly emotional. We're 98% emotional, 2% rational. Got to ignore that rationality, pay attention only to the emotions. It's hard for people to grasp because our culture is totally privileged and biased towards rationality. We're not yeah, rational. but that's a, that's a huge key factor. Just don't focus on the words. Focus on the emotions. That's right. That's, don't yeah. ignore the words. All they're going to do is get you into trouble. Yeah. When you're talking about emotions, now there are times when it's very important to pay attention to the words. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a pilot, and so when I get a clearance from air traffic control, I better pay attention to the words. <laughs> you better pay attention, exactly. <laughs> That's right. So it's always contextual, you know. And, but it's and for me, when people talking. tell me they're steps ahead of me, I better pay attention. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that, absolutely. So we do have yeah. to pay attention to the words. But when do you not pay attention to the words? You don't pay attention to the words when somebody's highly emotional and they're yelling at you or they're yelling at somebody else and you need to calm them down. At that point in time, the words are not important. We ignore them. Well, until I they calm down, yeah. Until they calm down, then we can pay attention to the words again. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to get through the rest of your book. And before we wind dine, down, excuse me, I'd like to first ask do you: you don't have an ebook yet, or are you on, going to be on Audible? Oh, it's on Audible. My wife actually it's on read Audible. the book. It's Fantastic. totally on Audible. So oh my God! Here's that's a, wonderful. I'm it's, an Audible member. It's on Audible. It was pub- the Audible version was public was released on September 12th, along with the print version. Um, it's also, on, of course, Kindle and Nook, all the usual places. I've got a deal. If people want to pay the shipping charge of seven bucks, I'll buy the book for them. That's how I badly saw I that. Get that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm so going to post can, that up on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to my yeah. website, Doug Noel, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot com. Click on the banner. You'll be taken to the link when you buy. If you buy the book for seven bucks, you'll get a one-time deep discount offer on the video course. If you want to sign up for that, totally your choice. Um, and so you can Great. get all the tools um, just by going to dougnoll.com and clicking on the banner. Fantastic, because we have many visually impaired listeners, and then of course you know right. many people who can see, so they'll have choices here. But right, absolutely. absolutely. Fascinating, and I, I bless you for doing the wonderful work that you're doing, Thanks. and thank you so much for your time today. And one more time, it's, it's dougnoll.com, and it's K N O W. No, 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 no. Let, let's make sure we get it right. Sorry. Okay, let's get, <laughs> no it right. let's get it right. D O U G N O L L. Noel with no K. Oh, my, sorry, I didn't arrow over my reader. My mistake. N O. Not a problem. Okay, L L. Great. Doug. Dougnoll.com. D O U G N O L L. Perfect. 
Thank you so much, Doug. You have a wonderful right. day. And for those thanks. of you listening, thanks for tuning into Second Vision. And remember, take peace into your life every day. I'm Kristen McDonald. Thanks for tuning in.